John Bickard, 91 Value Fund Manager. John, given this is our first conversation, just talk us through a bit about your investment philosophy, experience as an asset manager. The 91 Value Fund has done more than 17% per annum since inception, which is quite incredible given that it's been going for more than 20 years now. Have you been running the fund from the get-go? I've been running it since 2000, so 21 years. I think it was running two years before then. So basically uh, 21 of the 23 years. And in terms of your investment philosophy, John? So we've had the same investment philosophy over the full 21 years, and it's to buy out-of-favor deep-value stocks that the market is ignoring and taking a longer three-, four-year view and not worry about what the next quarter's earnings are, but rather what the fundamental earnings power of the business is and what the correct rating of the business is and to look through uh, the short-term noise. And so it often means we are often a number of years early. So we don't, you know, often we're not just months early, we're years early. So we look um, and say, what do you think on a normal cycle this company can earn? What sort of business is, is in the long term? What sort of rating it should command through the cycle? And we get a fair value. And if the share is well away from that, we buy it irrespective of what it's what's happening now. Um, and obviously, a very important thing is we spend a lot of time on the balance sheet to make sure that while we're waiting for things to change to unlock this value, that the company doesn't go bust. Because, you know, value investing is hard enough without having to do it before the company goes, goes bust. So... That's what we've done, and it means generally that we're always swimming against the tide. Uh, we're buying when others are selling and selling when others are buying. And it means you mentioned the long-term returns are the best in the industry, but on a three-year view, we often can come last because you know we're building the long-term and, and we want investors to give us the money on a three-, five-year view. And, and in exchange for the short-term pain that we give you, we give you better long-term returns. And it's not because, um, the last thing I'd say, it's not because we work harder or because we're smarter than the rest of the market. It's because you need to be compensated for the discomfort in the short-term of being in out-of-favor stocks. So you should make extra returns, and you do. And I've never understood why investors uh, wouldn't uh, take that trade-off, you know, some discomfort in the short-term for more gains in the long-term. John, I'm sure you'd feel a lot younger if that 17.2% per annum was earned equally every year for the last 20 or so years. But as you've just mentioned, that's not how the equity markets work, especially when you're a value fund manager. Deep cycles, which has been tough specifically for value-orientated managers such as yourself over the past decade or so. One day you cock of the walk, the next a feather duster. From a behavioral finance perspective, how have you managed to stay rational? in your decision-making yeah, when right. others haven't. Just go back to what you're saying. That was an interesting point because that 17% over 21 years, um, the first 10 years has, was really good. I mean, it was unparalleled, and the next 10 years was okay. So, you know, you know, we basically, the 20-year is divided into the first 10 years when value outperformed growth, and the next 10 years when value underperformed growth. And, substantially underperformed. I mean, I don't have to tell you how uh, growth stocks and tech stocks and quality stocks have dominated the last uh, 10 years. So, um, but it's a good, because it's a good 
it's good to know that you know the 20-year history has had 10 years of tailwinds and 10 years of headwinds so and yet we're still well ahead of the benchmark and all competitors which shows you do get compensated and and i would argue now we're going back into a period where we're going to see tailwinds so um you know the the performance is very been very evenly split between growth and value and yet we've still managed to show that four percent alpha so um it shows that it works even in down cycles but obviously we we prefer up cycles and and your second question was how do we get through that um you know it's a funny thing but i often find it easier when it's not going our way because we just keep buying the really cheap shares the thing the times i get the most stressed is when things are going really well for our stocks because it means we have to sell and find another one and it's much harder to decide exactly which level to sell and then you you have to go and do all the work to find another group of stocks or another stock to replace you know what's reached fair value and it's kind of easier when you know what you want to buy and the share just keeps falling and you just keep buying it um in a funny sort of perverse way that way that that period is often easier for us but the key thing is to do the work beforehand to make sure you've got a a, a concrete fair value and then the most important thing is to stick to your belief even if it takes three or four years for it to come through john let's start with a broader focus on the macroeconomic environment out there at the moment before we focus in on any stock specific news inflation and an imminent interest rate hike cycle are the primary drivers of fear at the moment specifically in the u.s what's your general take on sentiment and health of the global economy at the moment so on a broad broadly i would worry a lot about the market because i mean in essence we've had 20 years of over easy monetary policy you know starting in 2000 with Greenspan and then Bernanke. And basically the Fed has gradually inflated bigger and bigger bubbles over the last 20 years. And every time we've had a correction in 2001, we had massive cuts in 2008. We had massive cuts to rates and QE starting. And obviously in COVID, we had maximum QE really undertaken. And all that's happened is what in equity market we call the Fed put. In other words, the put option the Fed gives us equity guys that if things go really badly, they will cut rates. And if the rates cutting isn't enough, they will print money to bail out the equity market. And so this has just gone on and on and on in the, the, the rating of the specifically the U.S. market. But a lot of other developed markets have just risen and risen. And frankly, the valuations make no sense at all. They only make sense. If you put a zero discount rate in or very low discount rate in into your DCFs, you can get that. But obviously, you have to assume that nominal and real rates are going to stay very low, if not negative forever. And I think what's changed in the last year is finally the inflation thing, as you've mentioned, has turned. And we're sitting now with inflation at 7% in the US. And despite what... The Fed was saying a year ago or six months ago about being transitory. It is not transitory. The inflation is very broad-based and has only just started coming through into the labor market and into the housing market in terms of rent. And it's not just vehicles or, you know, what people have said. It is really broad-based and it makes sense. You know, we've been printing money for 20 years and 
Inflation is, after all, mainly a monetary phenomenon. And after printing money for 20 years, and then on top of it, you've had all this, the COVID backlogs, it's not surprising inflation's arrived. So, so I think there is a, a shift here, a very important shift that's happened in the last six months, which is inflation 7% in the US. And so the Fed put is no longer there. And yet the PE on the US market is still 25. And so we've seen a bit of a correction, but you know that's nothing compared to what's happened. And I think investors must realize the last time inflation was 7% in the US, the Fed funds rate, the interest rate in the US was 11.5%. <laughs> Today, the interest rate is zero. And at the last meeting last week, the Fed didn't even raise rates. You know, they warned us that they're going to raise rates next month. I mean, it's it's a, such an absurd situation we find ourselves in. In the old days, the Fed would have raised rates 100 basis points last week just because we're so far behind the curve. So all you can look forward to is rising rates in the future and inflation surprising on the up. And that is not a good thing. If you are holding shares on 25, 35, 40 PEs, that is not what you need to hear with, with the discount rate rising. Although I must just say as the last thing, interest rates are going to rise a lot, but because of the amount of debt in the world, they're not going to rise enough that they go higher than inflation. In other words, real interest rates are going to stay negative, but they are going to go from massively negative to somewhat negative, and the nominal interest rate is going to rise a lot. And unfortunately, the nominal rate counts a lot when you're doing discounted cash flows on shares. So... I think uh, as a broader thing, investors have benefited massively for 20 years of easy monetary policy. And frankly, if you're in a large global balance fund, I would be really worried about returns because that environment which I've just uh, discussed means you do not want to hold bonds yielding 1.8%. I mean, that is just a disaster. So the whole sovereign bond market in the developed world looks completely uninvestable. And then the derivatives of the bond market in the equity market, which are high PE stocks, mainly tech and quality stocks, are also very vulnerable. So if you're in a global balanced fund, that means a large portion of your portfolio, which is all the whole bond portfolio and uh, the growth and quality side of your equities look incredibly vulnerable. And the unfortunate thing that is that the U.S. is now 60 percent of the global index and tech is. I don't know what the number is, 40% of the US market. So you need to be very careful as an investor from here. And frankly, if you can get, if you can survive the next five years, I think you, you, you will have done well. If you can just get out of jail here without losing too much money in a broader portfolio. John, let's focus on your fund for a second, the 91 Value Fund. I had a look at the fund fact sheet as of 31 December 2021. I was really interested in what I saw, so apologies for the barrage of questions to come. Firstly, okay. the, J- the JSE All Share returning 12.6% over the last 10 years. So much about the JSE performing so poorly, which is true relative to the US over that period. However, 12.6% annualized is hardly a poor showing when you think of the long-term returns from the S&P 500, which is high single digits over 100 year plus. Yeah, it's been the ten-year number's all right, but the five-year number I think on the JC is a lot lower. I, I don't what I don't have that number to hand, but it's probably six percent or something. So, 
we've been through a very tough time uh, or a tougher time in absolute terms. And obviously the JSE relative to the world, which has been led by the US is miles behind over, over five years. So you're right, the longer term returns are still okay. And the shorter term returns up to a year ago were terrible. And then after last year is okay. So, but obviously they're massive swings and roundabouts. So the last three or four years has only been really uh, commodities that have driven the JSE and the broader JSE commodities. And then up to a year ago, NASPAS and the broader financial and industrials or what we like to call in the industry, South Africa Incorporated has done nothing, has done terribly for a long time, except maybe in the last year, there's some signs of, of a bit of a recovery happening there. From a sector perspective, 45% of the fund is invested in basic materials and industrials. Is that a combination of attractive valuations, inflation hedge, and sectors that generally will outperform in this current economic environment? So I think the big change we've made is the basic materials coming down a lot. So we don't hold any general miners at all. Obviously, that's been the area where there's been a lot of strength. You know, the market, the JC has been driven by the Anglos and Bulletins, and we don't see any value left there. So we haven't been in that sector for years, but we've been in the precious metal sector heavily in the last few years, gold and platinum. And frankly, the performance we've achieved in the last three and five years, which is good, despite a weak uh, value cycle, has all been because of platinum. So what we were talking about at the beginning when we say we look ahead and try and normalize, we bought a lot of platinum four years, five years ago, when Impala Platinum was 20 rand a share because we saw what the normalized earnings of platinum were when everyone was saying the industry was dead. And literally these shares have all gone up 10 times from the bottom. And we've now, the last holding we had was Royal Buffer King, which we bought really on the potential of corporate action with Impala. That happened at the end of last year. So we first sold all the Impala and then we sold all the Royal Buffer King. So we have nothing left in platinum. So the only basic materials we have left is gold, where we've got 15% of the portfolio in gold and gold has been a terrible performer. We still think there's a gold bull market and gold shares are literally at 25-year lows relative to the market. So basic materials is really just gold. And outside of that, we have nothing. And with that money in that we've realized from selling out of platinum, we've bought basically, we've had a large mid-cap position in South Africa for a long time. And we've sold a few of them, but generally mid-caps have made quite a big comeback as the SA Incorporated theme is, is, and we're still in that space. We've got about 35% of the portfolio in mid-cap shares, which we still think are cheap. And then with the money that we've realized from platinum, we've invested it basically in three very defensive SA stocks, which have done incredibly badly. So going back to what I said at the beginning, we're looking for shares that are multi-lows relative to the market, that are ridiculed by the market, which no one is interested in, and there are three shares that we've taken all our platinum money and put that in. And you probably wouldn't have, they would have just been coming into the fact sheet in December. And that is Tiger Brands, which we have 8% in, and Spa, which we have 7% in, and Oceana Fishing, which we have 2% in. So 15 to 20% of the portfolio is now in that. And these shares, these three shares are trading at 15 to 25 year lows relative to the market 
they're totally neglected by the market because everyone's buying um, commodities now. And yet they trade on, uh, those three counters trade on 5%, between 5 and 7.5% dividend yields and happen to be very defensive. You know, they are food and fishing and food retail. And we're not, you could say we're getting defensive, uh, maybe, but it's not why we bought them. They're all bought bottom up. You know, they happen to be really cheap. But it is interesting with the JSC at its all-time high that the, not surprisingly, we're finding value in the defensive side of the market because everyone's buying the more cyclical side of the market. So that's the big change we have. So basically, there's 15 in gold. There's 20% in these South African defensives. There's 35% in mid-caps. And there's 30% offshore, which is held in the 91 Global Value Fund. John, let's start with the fund's largest holding, Anglo Gold, multinational gold miner with no assets in South Africa, has a listing on the JSE. I stand to be corrected, but it's been a laggard relative to other gold miners in terms of returns and performance over the last few years. I speak to mining analyst Peter Major relatively regularly. He doesn't speak too highly of the management team. My question is why Anglo Gold over any of the other gold miners and why is it the fund's largest holding? So the reason why we have Anglo Gold is exactly why it's because Peter Major doesn't like it because everyone hates it. So there is a lot of valuation. So Anglo Gold has gone from, let's say, the preferred gold mine in South Africa because they're really only, there's really only three potential gold investments. And so that's gold fields and Harmony and Anglo Gold. And Harmony is the highest cost producer with the most marginal assets. And gold fields always had a problem with some of their mines in South Africa and Anglo Gold was the preferred miner five years ago. It's now almost as cheap as Harmony. So it's fallen on hard times. And I think the market's concerns are, I would say they, they're not unfounded because the management have done an indifferent job. You know, the, um, there have been, you know, there was a whole year where there wasn't a CEO. There's a new CEO now. So management have done an indifferent job. They've had, a uh, bit of bad luck as well, but all the th- everything's gone against Anglo Gold. So you're 100% right. It is the worst of the worst gold. Gold miners as a whole are cheap, and Anglo Gold is the cheapest gold mine. So that's exactly where we want to be. We don't have any worry with the balance sheets. Actually, in the best shape it's been in five or six years. They've had a number of problems. They've had the problem with the CEO, and they fixed that nine months ago. And there's a new CEO who's come in, and we're already seeing a little bit better uh, from him. They've had a big problem at Abuasi in Ghana, which is their new in inverted commas mine. It's a mine they've had for years, but they've opened an underground section to this mine. And a year ago, that uh, they ran into some big seismic problems there. But they seem to have overcome that, and they're back on track to open Abuasi in the next 12 months. So that's gone. And the third problem they've had, they have a joint venture with Barrick um, in the DRC in Kibali. And the money has been trapped in the DRC. So Kabali is a very successful, highly profitable mine. But the dollars haven't been coming out of the DRC the last couple of years. So um, you add all these things together, that means they've missed on production. Um, management haven't had a clear strategy. You know, there's been as much as 500 million US dollars trapped in the DRC. Their new mine, which was their growth vector, which is Abuasi, wasn't working. I mean, you can't make it up how bad it's been. So 
you know, that's what we like. You know, we like a whole raft of problems because we're getting a, a cheap valuation, providing, of course, the problems go away. So, again, all I can tell you, you know, we've had four major problems, and two of them are half fixed. And in time, the odds are all four will be fixed, but the share price says nothing will be fixed. And the future is uncertain, so we'll we'll go with, you know, things re- revert to the mean. John, talking about a whole raft of problems, Brait, an ugly tale, largest asset being Virgin yeah. Active, hammered by the pandemic, debt, rights issue. Again, I get the feeling all this negative sentiment is the reason you're taking the other side of the trade. But to have nearly yeah. 6% of the fund in a speculative asset like Brait, you must be relatively optimistic about its prospects. Okay, so I don't see it as a speculative asset. Let's just... Uh... I mean, it's an unbelievably cheap asset. I mean, you correct. I mean, obviously, there's been a rights issue now. Um, there's been two rights issues. I think the first rights issue was at Rand fifty, and the second rights issue, even though it was convertible, was now at six rand fifty. But you know, you just have to go back and remember, Brait was like a two hundred and forty rand share, and now it's a four or five rand share. So even if you take the two forty rand and you dilute it by the rights issues they had, you know, it was, this is entirely off the top of my head, it was 150 rand share, which is now five rand share. So it is immensely cheap. And ironically, if you go back and look at Brait today, it is in the best shape it's been in the last 10 years. I mean, when the share was 250 rand, it was run indifferently by a private equity group who frankly... Um, took a huge punt in UK retail in the form of New Look, New Look, where they lost all their money, and this this it was trading at a premium to its its valuation that its directors gave. Now today, we're down to just two assets, which is Premier Foods, which is one of South Africa's best food companies, and Virgin Active, which has obviously been killed by COVID, but right now is making a comeback. And if you take these two assets and you put Premier Foods on a Tiger Brands rating. And remember, the Tiger Brands is our third largest holding in the fund. So we love Tiger Brands at this price, at like a 12 PE. So you put Premier Foods, which is at least as good a business as Tiger Brands, on that valuation. And you put Virgin Active on the director's valuation, which, by the way, is probably half the valuation of four years ago. And only, you know, discounts that get somewhat back after COVID, you get to seven rand a share. And the shares right trading at four and fifty. So we're trading at a forty percent discount to a very low net asset value. And lastly, the debt has been massively reduced by the two rights issues and the sale of Iceland Foods. And I think we're down to about two and a half billion rand net debt, which is the lowest it's been in ten years. So the share is very low. It's at a forty percent discount to a low nav. You know, the truth is it's one of the best investments on the JSE now. And, um, yeah, that's why we have it. John, lastly, Spa is your chosen food retailer. Simple question, why Spa over a company like ShopRite? Well, the first thing is they're on different leagues in terms of share prices. ShopRite's trading close to its all-time high. So, literally, in the last 12 months, ShopRite is maybe up 60%. I mean, it's... You know, as things have got better in South Africa, the shares rocketed and SPA is down 20%. So the gap between them in the last year is like 80% gap. SPA is 
Same story as Anglo Gold has got some self-inflicted problems. And the two problems they've got is they've been growing slowly in South Africa uh, and losing market share. And I don't think there is anything fundamentally wrong with this bar business. I think they lost their way a little bit. But my experience of, you know, retailers is one does well and then the other does well. And, you know, you buy the one that's doing badly and you sell the one that's doing well in South Africa. And then they have a self-inflicted problem, which is maybe arguably more important, which is they bought a small operation in Poland, which is very small in terms of their relative revenue, but it's been a complete disaster and has lost them in the last 12 months quite a lot of money. So everyone hates spa and everyone loves ShopRite and somewhat likes pick and pay, but now pick and pay and spa and ShopRite trade on more than 20 times earnings. Spa's historic earnings are 12 rand, but if you take out the losses in Poland, it's 14 rand. So, and they will fix Poland eventually. So I'm saying the real earnings of Spa is 14 rand and the shares are 168. So Spa trades on 12 times earnings, which forgetting about the relative valuations for a cash steady uh, food retailer is a very attractive rating. 12 times earnings, 5% dividend yield, and is especially attractive when you think its competitors trade on more than 20 times earnings. So our investment thesis is that, and what we need to do for the value to be unlocked, we need the losses in Poland to come down. There's no sign yet, but you've got a back management, they'll do that eventually. And that they revert, let's say, to the mean in terms of their market share. And we would hope sometime the next year that with their report, the sales growth picks up back to, to where its competitors are. And actually there are some signs already that in December this last year, they started to do a lot better. So it's quite a, it's, it's not a share. We only think it's worth 220 Rand and its shares 168. So it's only a whatever 30, 35% return, but it's a very low, a, a very low risk share. So sometimes we buy, you know, often when we put our money in platinum, you know, those shares went up 10 times and we made five times our money. This is not one of those but it also doesn't carry the same risk that you did in platinum. So it's kind of a, a good return, a good steady return at relatively low risk.